Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's James Creppy, Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. Well, it is that time of year again. It is that week again, the week that so many fans uh, all over the state always look forward to each and every year, and it falls at the same time, albeit a different time on the conference schedule, and that is the Oregon-Oregon State Rivalry Week. We'll address first and foremost Obviously, the name change for the rivalry, we're not going to go into it exhaustively. That would, We could take a whole, not just a whole podcast, we, we could take all day uh, to go into that, and we're not going to reach any conclusions. So that's why we're not going to go into it too, too at length. We'll break down the game on both sides of the ball, and obviously look ahead to uh, today's game this afternoon at 4.30 at Research Stadium between the Ducks and the Beavers, and get into where each side uh, has some advantages, has some things going in their favor entering the game, and then we'll uh, have another edition of the podcast after the game Friday night and uh, go over the results and how things played out. First and foremost, uh, as I mentioned, obviously the name change to the rivalry. Uh, we Obviously both schools announcing uh, prior to the season that it's no longer being referred to as a civil war. Uh, you respect the school's wishes in that regard. They did not come up with a new name prior to this year's installment and uh, that's not exactly a big surprise given the relatively short timetable that was going on ahead of it uh, I realize for many fans they believe me I, I have the emails and the tweets and everything else about it uh, there are many who wish the name would have stayed the same there are those who even amid the name re the renaming uh, would like for it to stay the same and have suggested that and the like folks the name is going to change uh, and I can understand and respect and appreciate those who may want to be traditionalists and stick with that. A decision was made, I think, out of good reasoning uh, and certainly understandable reasoning by the institutions, by the athletic directors, presidents, etc., uh, and a name change is coming. What it'll be, we'll see. Obviously, we've all heard and seen the many suggestions, whether it be for the uh, Platypus Cup trophy, uh, something to that effect or something else uh, related to, obviously, the Ducks and the Beavers. I have suggested just because there is the big game with Cal and Stanford, which is actually a leading game uh, on Friday within the Pac-12, uh, and there is the game, the rivalry between Ohio State and Michigan, just because of the inherent uniqueness of it uh, and a name that can stand the test of time uh, and that is unique to the state of Oregon that I think would have some crossover 
carryability uh, would be the big one, uh, and the game being referred to as such. And you say the game, you know, the teams are preparing for the big one, and it would be out of not uh, uh, sarcasm or anything like that. No, it would be, a, I think, a crossover for emergency preparedness and things in the state, uh, and you know that that aspect of things. So again, just a, a matter of two cents. My thoughts, my uh, interjection is, uh, I assure you, of no greater value than that. I'm not going to belabor the point. Uh, I did not attend either school. I am not from the state, so my vested interest in it is de minimis, and my voice in it should be treated as such. Uh, those who did, those who have played in the game, those who have coached in the game, those are the individuals. Uh, and obviously the athletic directors and the presidents like those are the folks who should be involved in the decision-making process just because it has obviously been a topic of conversation for many months. That's why I just bring it up. But that's as far as we're going to go with it here today because, like I say, we're certainly not going to reach any conclusions. We are not going to reach any resolutions. That is not the point of today's podcast. But we mention it because obviously we're not going to be referring to it by its former moniker. In breaking down this year's game, Looking first and foremost to the Oregon offense against the Oregon State defense, and then we'll do the other side of things. Obviously, Oregon's offense has been balanced this year. It's uh, almost exactly balanced in terms of run yards and pass yards per game. Uh, And in a short sample size of just three games, we have seen that this offense can reach virtually perfect balance in that regard. And then last week happened with UCLA, and after coming out in game one where they had 40 carries and 269 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns to go with 227 passing yards and a passing touchdown, and then in the second game to have 312 passing yards and four touchdowns with 269 rushing yards and two touchdowns, I say that's pretty close to very even balanced, particularly after two games. Last week was different. Why was it different? Well, because UCLA sold out to stop the run. That's why. Uh, They stopped C.J. Verdell, and credit to them. They loaded the box. They created a lot of pressure and movement pre-snap and put eight and nine guys in the box at times, mainly eight. Seven and eight was pretty common in early downs. And they wanted to make it brutally difficult on Oregon, on any opponent so far that they've played. They have tried. Obviously, Colorado had a lot more success in that regard. But they have tried, and they did so against Cal. Now, granted, Cal didn't have a lot of time heading into that game. Neither team did. Um, And they didn't have a lot of time by way of practice. Uh, Cal didn't heading into that game against UCLA. So we didn't know exactly what to make of that performance. Well, we got a little bit more by way of clarity and answers. UCLA's defense did a great job at stopping the run by Oregon last week. Now, when you have a balanced offense, though, a truly balanced offense, in terms of what it is capable of, when something is taken away, when any defense goes into the game with the first premise and uh, you know point of emphasis being stop the run, try to make the opposition one-dimensional, start by stopping the run, UCLA did that. The problem was, was that the second dimension of Oregon's offense is so prolific and capable. That is what shows true balance. Because if this was not just a run-first team, if this was a, I wouldn't go so far as to say run exclusively, 
but run dependent team with a redshirt sophomore quarterback in his third career start and a experienced receiver core at the top, but budding below that, there were questions. But obviously, Tyler Shuck had started to answer and provide a lot of stability at the position in just two games. And in game three, when UCLA made it a point to stop the run and to take the run away, particularly when C.J. Verdell was on the field and obviously had a turnover as well, hey, how did Oregon respond? They turned to the passing game, including in very difficult downs and distances. They were living in third and long pretty much the whole night and yet managed to convert, yeah, three of 11. There was only one called run on third down from Oregon last week against UCLA. These are all things as a matter of context to say, when you have a truly balanced offense, if something is taken away from you, you can turn the other direction. If you are a really potent passing attack, do you have the run game to support you? If there is certain press uh, press man or zone defense or whatever the defense ends up doing, you see that with the air raid. You see that in what Mike Leach is experiencing at Mississippi State this year. In game one, they have unbelievable success. And then from there on, whether it be due to injury, departure, or one thing or another, defensive coordinators adjusted. It took some things away. Obviously, it's things that Leach has faced previously in his career, but he's in a new team and new conference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But bottom line, we know that in the air raid, they don't run very much, if at all. Well, you take away one major dimension, and you can really hamper that team. Now, of course, when you're passing and you're going four and five wide a lot, he still presents a lot of challenges schematically. If you have the depth in the secondary, you might be able to afford to do that. Well, UCLA had the depth and the skill and the talent to load the box and take away the run from Oregon. They did not have the depth and skill and talent to take away the pass because Tyler Shuck was able to connect, as I say. They were able to convert on third down just enough. But going 19 of 30 with three passing touchdowns and 334 yards, a huge chunk of those yards came on big passes, on big plays. 242 passing yards came on nine plays of over 15 yards. Now, not all of them were over 15 yards in the air. Some were shorter passes that were then taken for longer yards after the catch. And that happens because when the pressure is there, just throw it over their head. And Tyler Shuck was certainly able to do that uh, with regularity against UCLA. So that's why I say this is a, a truly balanced attack, even though last week's statistics may lead you to say balanced. What are you talking about? 334 passing. Yeah, but look at the prior games for one. And two, look at how that game played out that way. That's all the context. So as to say, what is Oregon entering the game with? We know they're entering the game with a very talented running back core. They were the number one running offense uh, in the Pac-12 prior to last week's game. Last week's statistics obviously skew that downward to where now they believe uh, fifth in the Pac-12 entering the game. But that is a little bit of a misnomer just in that UCLA went about things in a certain way schematically to where, yeah, they sold out to stop the run. I don't think Oregon's uh, running back core has suddenly become incapable of running the ball. Hardly. It was just UCLA did things schematically to take a different approach. 
Not everybody's going to be able to do that. I'll be curious to see if Oregon State's defense takes the same approach. Everybody would like to be able to do that against a prolific running team, after all. I mean, virtually any opponent, for sure. But particularly an opponent as stout running the ball as Oregon or Washington or Utah when they're you know typically loaded at the running back position, a little bit different this year. But that's one of the top pillars for any defense is, like I say, try to make the opponent one-dimensional. Can Oregon State do that? Well, as we know by their sample of games that we've seen so far, and that's, of course, the caveat to all of this is that the Pac-12 has just had less games compared to uh, other conferences across the country with the, with the exception of the MAC, and um, that the opponents that Oregon State has faced, uh, particularly uh, Washington in particular, is so prolific in the run that it skews some things a little bit there as well. But nevertheless, this is the games that we're, we're with. We're looking into a rivalry game, and it's only game four of the season. Oregon State's run defense, which had taken a significant stride last season in 2019 from obviously being abysmal in 2018, had opened up the season in a very difficult position, particularly after the Washington game. Very difficult position. And was very, 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 very lowly ranked. Uh, nationally speaking, albeit after just a couple of games. But the stats were there to say Oregon State's run defense is not very good through the first couple of games. Better last week, certainly, in the win over Cal. Better, but not excellent, not great. And again, Cal, when they are not, when they don't have their lead running back and Christopher Brown Jr., hard to know exactly how much stock to put into that per se. We know Oregon has been able to run the ball on Oregon State in years past. But when the entire offensive line changes, you have to you know create caveats for that as well. Say, all right, look, these teams are different. These teams are different uh, in a big way in terms of personnel. You can't just go by what happened last year, even though we're only four games removed, technically speaking, four or five games removed from that game. Can't necessarily say that. Uh, certainly not in terms of personnel. But the running backs for Oregon are the same, even if the offensive line has changed. Obviously, the coaching staff, the scheme from the offensive coordinator has changed, but the blocking has not necessarily been revolutionized or anything like that, certainly not. Oregon still has a very prolific running game. They have one of the best running backs in the league, certainly entering the season, C.J. Verdell very much was. And they have depth at running back with Travis Dye and Cyrus Abibi Likio. And they have been running the quarterback, obviously, much to the excitement of Ducks fans, far more prolifically this year with Tyler Shuck than they had been the prior couple of years. And part of that is because of the RPOs and the things that Joe Moorhead has brought to the table uh, that has just allowed for that and asked the quarterback to do that. And Shuck's got the skill set uh, to capitalize. So that all the factors that make Oregon's run game effective, uh, albeit yes, last week was a bit of an exception to that rule, but be that as it may, that's what makes them very effective there against a potential weakness. Well, when Oregon's run game is looking to get back on track, that's an area where they could probably try to look to exploit. Now, again, we know their passing attack is still talented, and unfortunately for Oregon State, their secondary obviously lost a lot by way of experience uh, and talent from a year ago. And this Oregon receiving core 
while, yes, Johnny Johnson III is back and Jalen Red is back, Micah Pittman did not play in the game last year. We don't know about his availability necessarily heading into the game today. But a Devin Williams, who, of course, we know the history there between the two schools during his recruitment and his transfer from USC, he has emerged in a huge way the last two weeks. But last week in particular with the six catches for 123 yards and a touchdown against UCLA with the 19-yard touchdown, also the 49-yard catch, he had a couple of very, very big catches. And the week before against Washington State, had a couple of big catches over the middle. And with Oregon getting tight end Hunter Campmoyer back, him having five catches for 70 yards and a touchdown, those are all career highs for him uh, in receptions and yards. This is an offense that is very capable. And at the same time, you have a receiver in Johnny Johnson the third, who has only had a couple of catches the last few weeks in each game, and yet you know he is capable of so much. Uh, so this is a receiving court that is deep, that is talented, and has a combination of experience and proven pieces and budding names, particularly in a Devin Williams, who is such a big target with an enormous catch radius, sure hands, willingness for contact, and perhaps more importantly than anything, because after all, six catches for 123 is spectacular. Uh, and he was targeted 11 times. And yeah, there's a drop in there, sure. But, you know, that happens at the receiver position. Even if you include all the targets. Hey, you targeted 11 times out of 30 throws. There were 34 runs. You had to do a lot of blocking. And Devin Williams is a unbelievably willing blocker at the receiver position, especially for somebody who's 6'5". He is willing to throw his body around when he's catching the ball. He is willing to throw his body around when he's blocking for running backs, when he's blocking for his fellow receivers. So he is certainly a major weapon for Oregon on the outside, regardless of whether it's a pass or a run in particular. Again, at the tight end position, having Camp Moyer back, DJ Johnson obviously had been prolific the prior two weeks. Oregon ran a lot more of 12 personnel, one back, two tight end last week against UCLA than they had in prior weeks. That will be an interesting component to me entering this game. Will we see more from Oregon's offense in terms of scheme? We have not seen a ton of trickeration um, and exotic plays necessarily from Joe Moorhead just yet. Now, again, it's only a couple of games, so you don't want to – you know, get too far ahead of your skis and reach and, and you know, start reaching for some, some conclusions. These are the games that bring out those sorts of things. Rivalry games and games where you're saying, all right, we were playing the cards relatively close to the vest. We were expanding the playbook, expanding what we could do in terms of when personnel gets back, when somebody like a Devin Williams comes along, adds to the offense. But now that you're playing later in the season, now that you're playing more significant opponents, regardless of record. We know just the, the, it didn't matter what the record is. When you play Oregon State, when you play Washington and you're Oregon, you're going to do some things and turn to pages in the playbook that hadn't been exposed before. You save these, you save plays for these kinds of games for exactly this reason. So that'll be an intriguing thing to me uh, in general for the game. So offensively, I think Oregon does have an advantage against the Oregon State defense uh, in terms of skill in certain matchups. Now, having said that, that is not to look past the Oregon State linebacker core is the best linebacking core that Oregon is going to face this season. 
No question about it. Stanford could have been there. Could have been there. But when Gabriel was out, that really messed things up for Stanford in a big way. Uh, Washington State's linebacker court, Jihad Woods, individually had a good game for the umpteenth year in a row uh, against Oregon. Had a productive game. Had a good game. Impacted it in a big way. But the entire linebacking core wouldn't say Washington State's linebacking core is better than Oregon State's. Wouldn't. You could certainly say Jihad Woods is one of the best linebackers in the league. Certainly one of the most productive. Has managed to be productive against Oregon for years, but wouldn't put the entire linebacking core from Wazoo there. Oregon State's linebacking core, and certainly not UCLA's, even though the front seven was effective, the front four, the defensive front, was really more responsible than the second-level defenders. Oregon State, their linebacking core between uh, Hamilcar has obviously been a terrific player, all-American caliber linebacker. I realize his statistics aren't necessarily there in the same way as they were a year ago, but again, we're dealing with short sample sizes and every opponent knowing that they have to try and figure out a way to take him out of the game from an impact standpoint. So you can't just go by that. He is impacting games regardless of what the stats say. The defense is impacting games in terms of rushing the passer, collapsing the pocket, challenging the pocket's integrity, all things that Mario Cristobal mentioned earlier in the week. So not just him, though. Avery Roberts, Omar Spades, these are guys who they create disruption. They create tackles for loss. They create sacks. They create pressures. These are things that Oregon's offense and offensive line did well the first two weeks, did not do as well last week. And I've said that I don't personally view any of the four sacks last week as issues for Tyler Shuck. Maybe one of them, if you want to bend it a bit to say, all right, maybe perhaps he could have gotten the ball out. Maybe if he forced it, if he got it out super quick, if he made just such a fast read, maybe just maybe, but Quite honestly, and looking back at those four sacks, it really came down to between the offensive line and the tight ends and the blocking, and just flat out and simple, UCLA brought more numbers. And this is ultimately, people try to make football a very complicated game when sometimes it's a very, very basic game. It's a game of numbers. It's a game of math and how many hats are on hats, and how many guys are in the box, and do you have enough blockers against how many guys could be coming at you, and vice versa. And, and you know, when they drop seven or drop eight, and, you know, what do you have versus, you know, the other way? Zone and man, and if it's man-free coverage, and that's where you get quarterbacks suddenly uh, escape the pocket and break free for long runs when there's clear-out routes and things like that that go on. So, again, linebacking core from Oregon State, certainly the most talented that Oregon has faced top to bottom, across the board uh, at the linebacker position. That is is a part of the offense versus defensive uh, matchup where I do think Oregon State has an advantage. It's can they free up their most disruptive players? Can they do that either through pre-snap movement, either through stunts and stems and twists? How do they try to free things up for Hamilcar, for Avery Roberts, for Omar Spates to either get rush off the edge, rush up the middle, and get free rushing lanes on Tyler Shuck. If Oregon State can do that and create negative plays, they can at least hope to get Oregon off the field in an unfavorable 
third down situations, unfavorable run situations, and that's all you can really look to hope for if you're Oregon State. You're not looking to grind this game out in like a 13-10 kind of game. This is going to be a game, in my view, probably played in the 20s to 30s. Anything more than that, Oregon State's probably going to have a hard time keeping up. And I don't think it's realistic for either team to go into it thinking it's going to be played, like I say, below 15 or 14 apiece. I don't think it's going to be that kind of game either. So how do you try to free up your best defensive players to create pressure? These are basic questions anybody would ask themselves on any given week. But in this one in particular, where Oregon struggled with that last week, how does Oregon State's defense go about that? So that is how I view things on the side of Oregon's offense against Oregon State's defense. Now we'll get to the Oregon State offense against the Oregon defense. And to that side of the ball, look, Oregon State is coming off having a very nice performance again against Cal. And Jamar Jefferson, as an individual running back, individually, is without question, just as we were mentioning the Oregon State linebacking core being the best linebacking core that Oregon's going to go up against, without question, bar none, no doubt about it, the best running back that Oregon will face in a game this season. Unless, you know, something happens at a bowl game and then there may be a better individual. But in conference play, I mean, it's not even close. It's Jamar Jefferson. There really isn't a, a, a close comparison. Because Deion McIntosh has played well, and I don't want to take anything away from him. But Jamar is a better running back than Deion McIntosh. I mean, there's no way around that. And Demetric Felton is a dual-threat kind of player. He has certainly been a prolific receiver throughout his career. I would say he is a better receiving back than Jamar. Maybe the best receiving back in the league, quite honestly, unless Max Borgie is around uh, and healthy. And C.J. Verdell is very talented in that regard as well. But as a true all-around running back, Jamar is without question the most difficult challenge that Oregon's going to face this season. And the young man's got just shy of, for all intents and purposes, 450 rushing yards in three games. That's spectacular. Those are terrific statistics. To be topping 100 yards every game, over seven yards a carry, five touchdowns through three games. Jamar Jefferson is, and this is hardly comes as a big development and surprise for anybody in the opposing defenses. It's not like Washington State's defense or Washington's defense in particular or Cal's, but especially Washington's defense. It's not as though these opponents were blown away like, wow, we didn't know Jamar was that good. All these opposing defensive coordinators and like I say, the one that stands out to me most is Washington, where we know what Jimmy Lake's defenses traditionally do. And yeah, Washington won the game, but Jamar still had 133 rushing yards and 23 carries. Hard for an opposing defensive coordinator to consider that a success. And of course, we're not going to go and revisit the issue with the bad spot and every which else. That, again, we could spend all day on that. So we're not going to go there. To just the raw numbers and performance, Jamar Jefferson is the biggest test that Oregon has to face. And it's coming off of a performance where Oregon was absolutely gutted by UCLA on the ground. And they carved them up, mainly with Demetric Felton, but Britton Brown as well, 
performed well. I'm not getting into one play by Kyle Phillips that's technically a run or no. I mean, the lead backs did a terrific job. Now, how did UCLA do that? Primarily early on, they turned to the triple option, uh, and that's not something that UCLA typically does, but they turned to the triple option and they found some great success in that regard, hit some big plays. Oregon was not prepared for that, and calling it like it is, UCLA's offensive staff entered the game with a terrific game plan, terrific tactics, looked through and said, what do we have in terms of personnel? What are we capable of? Where has Andy Avalos struggled as a play caller in terms of preparation in his career? And they went back and saw historically at Boise State in his first year as a play caller, when he faced the triple option against Air Force in New Mexico, those teams were unbelievably effective. Well, hey, you can turn to the triple option and say, all right, well, this isn't something we usually do, but uh, for this game, we're going to need it. And let's see if we can hit something here. And like I say, Oregon wasn't prepared. And between that and some other unbalanced formations, they gave Oregon's defense fits, particularly in the first half. Whether there was some coverage issues, that's one of the things that led to a UCLA touchdown. Whether it was certainly the run game. UCLA had a great rhythm and success on offense. And then there were other things about going tempo from second to third down when they got effective runs on first and second when they got into third and manageable, which was most of the game, they converted six of nine on third and four or less, which that's not necessarily an outlandish number given the short yardage nature of things. But how they were doing it wasn't just because, oh, statistically they're there and they were just absolutely blowing Oregon off the line of scrimmage necessarily on those plays. Obviously they had some success in that regard. The main thing was was they weren't allowing Oregon to sub. UCLA integrated and went between triple option, which, of course, this is the great schematic and strategic decision that UCLA did. By comparison, where if you go to a triple option team, there are not that many triple option teams and possession-style teams that are going to play up-tempo. <laughs> it's not necessarily part of the cards. It's kind of counterintuitive. Part of the thing of playing triple option and playing possession is that you're bleeding the clock. Yes, you can go tempo from second to third if you get into third and short or third to fourth if you get into fourth and really short, certainly, to try and get the defense in a tough spot if you feel you have an advantage from personnel standpoint and matchups and size on the line of scrimmage. Well, UCLA was doing that periodically throughout the game. Early on, like I say, with the triple option, then, when they would get into third and manageable, whether it was off the triple option or not, they would go no huddle, and they would not allow the Ducks to get certain sub-packages in there for third and shorter runs to try and get bigger bodies in there. They don't want you to sub. And then if you convert and you go no huddle again, then they're not subbing again. So you're right back at it. So, again, UCLA executed a game plan terrifically in terms of making it effective for the run. What does that mean for Oregon State? Well, I don't think Oregon State is necessarily going to, in the span of a week, resort to the triple option necessarily. They might. It's not something that is inherently foreign to most college football players because most players in high school, even if they played in spread systems, at somewhere along the line, 
in their playing careers in earlier years, they probably ran, if not the triple option, then at least a heavy running style scheme. Do I think Oregon State's going to turn to that? No. But obviously Oregon State does turn to multi-tight end sets a lot to create some additional blockers. Jamar is a disciplined runner. He is a patient runner in terms of waiting for holes to open up. He's not somebody who just relies purely on power. He's not somebody who relies purely on speed. He allows each of those traits to work in balance with one another. And again, is patient enough and disciplined enough now that he, after all, he's a junior. He's gotten the game experience. He's gotten the coaching and development to know and get a good feel for when is the hole going to open up, allowing for his offensive line to do the work for him and setting up blocks. Those are things that come with time. Good field vision, good discipline, etc. That's that's all part of making yourself into a better back. And like I say, that's what we're seeing from Jamar Jefferson this year. So Oregon has a legitimate and major test on its hands and challenge on its hands from Jamar Jefferson. And this is a defense that struggled with the run last week. Part of that, like I say, strategic, schematic, and the like, but nevertheless, struggled. And secondly, a defense that has struggled with tackling each of the last two weeks. Now, unlike certain strategic or, or schematic decisions by UCLA, tackling is tackling. And it is not a unique problem to the Oregon defense. It is a problem in college football in 2020 for myriad reasons that we, we can't get into all of them. Bottom line is it's a problem in the sport, and you you know exactly why. So can Oregon get it cleaned up? How does Oregon State try to exploit it? How much do the Beavers turn to certain strategic decisions? I'm, like I say, I don't think they're going to come out and triple option all of a sudden ad nauseum. But do they turn to in third and shorter in third and four plus, but especially three and two and one, if they get into third and short from second down and they know it, it's not, oh, we have to get a measurement and there's a, you know, a delay. And no, if they get a pass for, you know, they could be in second and longer and all of a sudden they get a pass and now it's third and two, do they run up to the line if they feel they have a personnel advantage and try to run a play quickly on the ground because their splits as a team, but obviously especially through Jamar, have been unbelievably effective at converting on third and shorter. Now, again, it's a high-probability play for the offense. That's where it's supposed to be. The advantage does lie to the offense a bit in third and short. But can they get there? That's a critical thing because the Ducks have struggled with that. Having said that, conversely, the other part of this matchup, on offense. On one hand, again, you don't want one game to completely swing your view and assessment of a player from one game to the next. But Tristan Jebbia went from a difficult and struggling performance at Washington. Well, let's go back even to the game, the, the season opener. Through for a bunch of yards against Washington State, but again, that defense as a whole has not exactly been very good. The following week, had a terrible performance against Washington, as we all know, threw for just 85 yards, and then responded with a game against Cal where, all right, he throws two picks with one touchdown, 12 of 20 for 147. Not spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. Not terrible, but not great. 
So you have one outlier on the high end, one outlier on the low end, and something on the lower portion of the middle. All right. Having said that, you know it's still a run-centric offense. When Oregon is able to get into certain obvious passing downs, they have performed unbelievably well, spectacularly well. When they've gone to the dime package, when Andy Avalos can get the dime personnel in there, when Andrew Fowler gets on the field, when the additional pass rushers get on the field, when the additional defensive back gets on the field, they open some things up and they have not allowed very many conversions, particularly in meaningful spots. Oregon State's passing attack, when they have to go third and seven plus, Tristan Jebby has completed some passes, but on 12 attempts on third and seven plus, they only have two conversions. He is six of 12, but only two conversions. And even if you want to go into third and medium and throw in an additional five pass attempts, a couple of conversions, each one he completed, but on a, you know as the sample gets a little bit bigger in terms of volume of passes, again, realize we're only dealing with three games. But passing in third and manageable, third and long, and third and real long, which all starts to favor the defense, the passing splits show that if Oregon can keep Oregon State out of third and shorter and allowing Jamar to move the sticks, and frankly, Jebby and the few pass attempts he's had on third and short because they haven't only run in that distance, they've converted. But if they can get Oregon State into third and even medium, but especially long, but even medium, Oregon's defense could have an advantage there. Now, the Ducks have not created a ton of disruption in terms of statistically. They have not created a lot of sacks just yet. Hasn't been there. However, Kayvon Thibodeau has been within inches of sacks, and in some cases sack fumbles, basically each and every week. There have been specific instances and specific plays where he doesn't record anything in the box score, but if you go back and look at the tape, he is, in some cases, literally in midair, arms extended, inches from the quarterback's arm and the football. So he is fractions of a second away from creating all kinds of havoc and has obviously turned around his game to being not just a situational pass rusher but being an every-down defensive lineman. And the tackles for loss that we have seen from him have come mainly in the running game, which is great to see from a true sophomore. Obviously, Noah Sewell has been a disruptive player. He had a sack last week. He was one of those disruptive guys, and, of course, he went down with that injury. He's to return to practice. That's obviously terrific news for Oregon's defense as a whole. And Oregon's defense, after not having any takeaways the first two weeks, has several last week. So can the Ducks keep that part up? If they, uh, Whoever wins the turnover battle obviously is at a massive advantage, particularly if it starts to get into the two and three-plus range. But that goes that's, that's inherently obvious no matter what the game is. From the strictly matchup standpoint, Jamar Jefferson gives the Beavers an advantage in an area particularly that Oregon is coming off of a difficult performance and where they've struggled in tackling. However, if the down and distance is favorable to the defense, in general, not just favorable to the Ducks defense, favorable to any defense in general, 
This is where the Ducks can feast, and they have feasted on third and longer, as most defenses do, but their splits are terrific this season. And that's where your situational pass rushers like an Adrian Jackson, like an Andrew Fallu, they get on the field. Brandon Dorless, he had the big hit that set up the pick six before halftime and the pick six from Jordan Happel last week. Getting those players on the field, that's going to be the key. On those third and manageable third and long and longer downs. The third down schedule for Oregon State's offense, I think, is going to determine how close this game is. If Oregon State, if offensively, Oregon State can stay in third and medium and third and short throughout the game, they will be able to stay competitive and keep it close. At which point, anything can happen. Because then a turnover happens, a fumble happens, a, you know, a bizarre hit happens, you name it. Something, something strange occurs, a missed tackle, a busted coverage, whatever. A punt return, a kick return, whatever the case is. Something unusual happens, and all of a sudden, a game that was one score one way swings the other way, or vice versa. Or, you know, you're up one, now you're up two, or you're up by a field goal, and now the other team takes, you know, flips things with a touchdown the other direction. If Oregon State can stay in third and manageable, I think the game stays competitive, at which point, because they're going to lean on their running back, as they should. They can take the game into the fourth quarter and be in a competitive spot, much like last year. If Oregon's defense can force Oregon State into third and medium to long throughout the night, therefore containing Jamar, relatively speaking, on first and second down, then I think that bodes unbelievably well for Oregon. Having said that, and this will be the last bit on that aspect of the breakdown, Jamar Jefferson has only been held under 100 yards rushing when he's had at least 20 carries in a game twice in his career. Both times came against Oregon. So we know, and under two different coordinators, no less. So we know that the Ducks can do it. They have done it. Can they do it again against a running back who is performing as good or better than at any point in his career? And lastly... We will wrap it up briefly with special teams. This is an area that, from a return perspective, uh, I think Oregon has an advantage, particularly in the kickoff return area. They have some terrific players there with Michael Wright, uh, specifically on kickoff return. On punt return, Travis Dye has gotten off to a nice start as well. The area where there's difficulty, obviously, for both teams is a kicker. And I have no idea... Uh, where you could really give the advantage, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure which team you give the advantage at kicker. Uh, there could be a change at kicker for the Ducks. Camden Lewis has had a tough start to the year. Henry Cattleman has been working with the starting specialists throughout the course of the week. We'll see if he gets his first opportunity as the full-time kicker today. He certainly could. And if there's a change there... That may or may not lead to certain results. Really really have a hard time projecting there. But obviously Champ, Plem Champ Flemings is a nice returner as well for Oregon State. And in the punt return game, Trevor Bradford 
has done well for Oregon State as well. So as good as both teams are on the return side of things, there are questions in the kicking game. So there I I kind of view it as a bit of a wash, to be quite honest. So I do think from obviously strictly in terms of talent, skill, depth, experience, of course you have to give the edge to the Ducks because after all, they have won this game each of the last three years. They are favored to win the game. They are the team that has recruited better for the last several years. All of those are the factors that make them the favorite to win the game. So do I think they're going to win the game? Yes. As I say, there are factors whereby I do think Oregon State can keep it close and competitive. Look, Oregon was favored to win last year's game handily, and Oregon State kept it close all the way until the, the final couple of minutes before the fumble by Jamar Jefferson. So that is how I view it. That is the breakdown of it. We'll certainly have lots from this afternoon's game. Lots of coverage on OregonLive.com for myself and Nick Daschle and John Canzano and Aaron Fentress and plenty of others uh, as well. And then we'll visit with you once again on the podcast probably late Friday night into Saturday morning. Going to try and record it as fast as possible after the game is wrapped up, after returning home uh, from the game in Research Stadium. But looking forward to it. Hope you enjoy the game. We'll visit with you then.